Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are three of my Black classmates, Jerry Secundi, George Jones, and John Woodford. I'm also joined by classmates David Othmer, Doug Shapiro, Jeff Fox, George Allen, Joel Huberman, and Marcy Benstock. Our guest is Andrew Basevich. He is an American historian specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, and American diplomatic and military history. He is a professor emeritus of international relations and history at the Boston University School of Global Studies. He is also a retired career officer in the armor branch of the United States Army, retiring with the rank of Colonel. Basevich is co-founder and president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His latest book is After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. Thank you for joining us and tell us about your book. Uh, well, A, uh, delighted to do that, and I'm grateful for this opportunity uh, to, uh, to meet with you and, and know a little about, about your lives. Uh, I won't give you my uh, bio. I'm a retired academic. I'm now president of a startup think tank based in Washington called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, we're a small outfit. What we stand for is restraint as a principle in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, in simple terms, restraint means de-emphasize the reliance on military power, re-emphasize uh, uh, diplomacy. Uh, you know, people will say, have said, oh, you're a bunch of isolationists. We're not. Uh, we think it's essential to engage the world. We just think that there are better ways to engage the world than we have been doing so, uh, particularly since the end of the Cold War. So this book uh, called After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transform, uh, I wrote it like in four months. Uh, and, you know, I mean, candidly, I wrote it because uh, we were all experiencing the events of last year. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm guessing you were troubled. I was troubled. Uh, natural disasters exacerbated by the, by the climate crisis, uh, a pandemic, which... Uh, you know, we're still in it. Millions of people out of work, millions of businesses uh, destroyed, uh, inhabiting the White House, uh, a dishonest and incompetent, and I think fundamentally lazy uh, human being who was not up to the task of responding to these things actually made him worse. And I think not least of all, uh, sort of running in parallel with all this, uh, were uh, new demands for the United States, for Americans, uh, to confront our, uh, our history of racism, uh, and those demands then triggering in response a, a populist uh, uh, backlash. Bottom line, 2020 was really a bad year for our country. Purpose of my book was try to speculate about how all these negative events might result in a redefinition of what 
our role in the world is supposed to be. Uh, that's that's what that's the, the guts of the of the book. So among the topics I discuss, uh, one, where to situate the United States in the arc of history. Uh, you know, I I'm more or less the same age as uh, most of you, I think. Uh, and I, as a young person, uh, bought into the construct of an American century. That is to say that we had entered a period of history when it was uh, inevitable that the United States would enjoy a position of primacy. And indeed, that history itself uh, was, was going to validate uh, our primacy, that, that history was going our way, headed toward a destination that reflected uh, an American perception of how things were supposed to work. I write about that. I write about the notion of the West, calling into question whether the West uh, actually exists any longer. Again, growing up, I took it for granted that we were part of a larger civilization, uh, mostly centered in Europe and North America, but a civilization that held in common a value set, democracy, market economics, a particular definition of, of freedom and, and human rights. Uh, in, in this book, I question whether or not the West ever existed and I certainly question whether or not it is useful for us to see ourselves as part of the West. I write about what I think are the poisonous effects of special relationships. You know, uh, when Washington uh, published his farewell address at the end of his uh, presidency, he warned against special relationships. He, he, he specifically warned that special relationships cause countries to come to a misunderstanding of their true interests. He was right then. And I think with that in mind, it's time for us to question our special relationship, particularly two. Uh, one is with the United Kingdom uh, and the other is with the state of Israel. I think it's time to re-examine that. Matter of fact, I argue that if we should have special relationships with any countries in the world, we should have a special relationship with Canada and with Mexico because they are our neighbors, because our destiny is deeply entwined with those two countries. And yet, for reasons that are difficult for me to figure out, we, we tend to treat Canada and Mexico as kind of, you know, afterthoughts. <laughs> we just, two countries that are the most important to us, uh, we, we take, we take for, uh, for granted. I talk about uh, the climate crisis and how, uh, are how, how slow we have been. I would accuse, include myself in this charge, how slow we have been, not simply to recognize the climate crisis, but to appreciate the cumulative effects of abusing nature. Uh, I, I cite as an, as an illustration of that, going back to my days in the Vietnam War, uh, I, 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 cite, I cite the use of, of defoliants uh, by U.S. forces, most famously Agent Orange, that we dumped all over the Republic of Vietnam, dumped all over Laos uh, to kill vegeta vegetation. 
supposedly to expose the enemy uh, so that we could deal with the enemy more effectively. Well, that didn't work. But what we got out of, uh, of, of this massive use of defoliants was uh, disease, uh, you know, deformities, birth, of, birth defects, uh, and, they, and they affect not simply the people of Vietnam and Laos. They affect us. They affect the veterans population. They, they even affect me. I don't want to go into the details. But I mean, uh, I think the misuse of chemicals uh, in, in Vietnam is a powerful illustration of our abuse of nature and our inability to, to recognize the cumulative negative effects uh, that have that have uh, resulted in that. So those are the kinds of things I talk about. I do have a, a a somewhat speculative chapter that 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 spins off of the Black Lives uh, Matter uh, uh, movement. Uh, it's a, it's a chapter that tries to, um, in summary form. Uh, Connect, connect race to the American military experience. And, 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 and the point of departure for this chapter, I bet you some of you are familiar with this. There was a famous uh, propaganda series uh, prepared under the auspices of the United States government during World War II, uh, by, made by Frank Capra. Almost all of us know Frank Capra from his sentimental, uh, but nonetheless quite wonderful uh, movies. Uh, and Capra had come, been brought into the army and he made a series of propaganda films. Uh, the whole series was called Why We Fight, produced by the War Department. The immediate purpose was to provide these to, uh, to GIs as basically to, to tell them why we were fighting. So the series includes both kind of a sanitized view of the origins of the war and, and more importantly, a sanitized view of all of US military history up to the 1940s. I think the first time I saw these films, of course, I accepted them as at face value, as utterly true. <laughs> and it was only a few years ago, I can't remember how I, how I discovered it. Capra made a uh, uh, kind of a, a sort of a footnote to the series. Another movie, it's about 45 minutes long, called The Negro Soldier. And then the purpose of The Negro Soldier was to make the case to black Americans about why they should fight. Uh, and it's, uh, <laughs> again, a very sanitized uh, uh, narrative of, 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 black, um, of the history of black Americans in the United States. He gives about he gives about three seconds to the Civil War, and never mentions slavery. Uh, but watching the Negro Soldier made me realize that the Why We Fight series did not include any reference to race. The Why We Fight series depicted a nation fighting against totalitarianism fighting against racism that itself had absolutely no connection with race whatsoever. So, so th that particular chapter sort of begins with references to 
why we fight and the Negro soldier, and then tries to trace uh, the, 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 the African-American military experience from World War II uh, up through and including uh, the present moment. And I'm not doing a very good, a, a good job of, of uh, summarizing the chapter, but the bottom line I come to is this, and this is entirely speculative on my part. The essential history of the United States that I learned and that I grew up with centered on freedom and centered on the challenges to freedom that we as a nation were called upon to, to resist. I mean, the most, two, two above all, two above all. The first one, of course, was Nazi Germany in World War II. And following hard on the heels of World War II was the Soviet Union. We were about freedom. They were about totalitarianism. That's the essential history that I grew up with understanding about America's role in the world. We're about freedom. We resist totalitarianism. So I, I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching these films and thinking about it and, and then tracing the history of, of black participation in uh, our military history uh, after that since up to, up to the moment of black minds. And I say to myself, wait a second, could it be that in our present moment, the the, the essence of our history, our purpose, this journey that our country is involved in is not captured by freedom against totalitarianism. But could it be that it is racism against freedom? And if you define contemporary history in those terms, then it could be that we've been on the wrong side. Uh, as I said, it's kind of a speculative chapter, but it's one that uh, I try to sort of spin that out. So uh, that's the, the essence of the book. Uh, the last chapter uh, uh, it, it, it tries to say, well, then what are the implications for US foreign policy? Uh, I think that the, the, the essential implication is that we now live in a moment where we need to redefine the, the notion of national security threat. The threats to our well-being, to your well-being, mine, the well-being of your grandchildren, the well-being of my grandchildren, are no longer out there. They're no longer in Europe. They're no longer in East Asia. They're no longer in the Persian Gulf, at least the primary threats, the primary threats the primary threats to our well-being and the well-being of our grandchildren are here. And, and, and so the essence of, of the change needed in national security is to come to that understanding. Not, not, not that we're going to ignore Europe, East Asia, the Persian Gulf, but there needs to be a reallocation of effort and resources to pay attention to those things that threaten us where we live. That's the key phrase, where we live. What are those things? They are climate change. They are pandemics. They are, they are, are borders that we've lost uh, control of. They are domestic dysfunction 
that demands to be addressed uh, before you know the whole edifice uh, crumbles. And that's that's what I kind of suggest in the uh, in the conclusion. It's a short book. It's only like 160 pages long. You probably could read it in the course of an afternoon. And I would be grateful uh, if uh, you would consider taking a look at it. Mm-hmm. So I'll, uh, Kent, I'll stop there and we can have uh, questions hey. and discussion. Let me, let me start off with the uh, kind of the worldview. Our current president, thank goodness, in my opinion, is pulling us out of Afghanistan uh, after a trillion dollars and tens of thousands of lives lost. Um, on the other hand, the Taliban are proving to be even more aggressive than we had hoped or some had hoped. Uh, And we are leaving behind many interpreters and allies that will probably be slaughtered. Do you feel that we are doing the right thing in terms of quote, and I put this in quotes, abandoning uh, our friends in Afghanistan? Well, I think we're doing the right thing in ending the war first. You know, it's a 20 year effort. It's not been a consistent effort. Uh, It's not, I think a particularly uh, intelligent effort. It's an effort that, that began with wild promises uh, that we were uh, not able to deliver. I just finished writing an article about this, and I, I had to go back to the, the so-called Bonn, Bonn, Germany, Bonn Conference of December 2001, which is where the United States and its allies laid out, here's, a, here, here's our objectives for Afghanistan. And we wildly overpromised, you know, Democracy, stability, effective government, rights for women. Uh, we didn't have the ability to deliver on that. So here we are 20, minute, 20 years later. Yep, we, it's time to call this thing quits. It's a failed war. It is a failed war. Failure does not uh, absolve us of moral responsibility for the consequences. On the contrary, we have profound moral responsibility. We're making a, a gesture at addressing those responsibilities uh, through the, uh, what's it called? Special, special visa program? Special, uh, not, yes. uh, no, it is, it is a special. Ad, ad, admitting admitting uh, some number of Afghans to our country, uh, those Afghans who have, who helped U.S. forces, helped the U.S. effort and their families. Uh, it's kind of a too little, too late, uh, m- much like Vietnam. Uh, it needs, it needs to continue. It needs to expand. I think the other The other uh, likelihood that we need to face up to is if the Taliban prevail, you know, who knows, but my guess is at this point, they probably will. Uh, We we don't know what will will follow. In all likelihood, however, a massive outflow of refugees will occur. This is what occurred when when the Soviets came in back in 79. Uh, and we will have a moral responsibility to to try to assist those refugees. I don't mean uh, it's that's money. It's given money to the United Nations or other refugee agencies. It doesn't doesn't mean we're going to go over there and, and and have the United States government run the camps because we probably screw it up. But uh, we're going to have to uh, make a uh, significant uh, and enduring uh, contribution to providing for the well-being of Afghans who have been displaced as a consequence of this catastrophe. Uh, you know, will we have the will to do that? Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of uh, Obama, excuse me, as, of Biden as, uh, as perhaps some of the others on this call are. 
Jeff. You know, I, I, I read your, your recent um, article in The Nation, and I thought it was uh, like a very good introduction to an argument that I was still waiting for. That is, um, all right, uh, you've made clear that the, our approach has been wrongheaded, uh, that relying on military power as to, to achieve objectives is not the right way to go. But, and so I'm wondering just what would you propose? Uh, what, I, I, I think we're, we're probably all very supportive of your notion that what we need is more diplomacy and, and less military aggression. But just um, what would you advise our, our government to do now uh, with you know, regard to uh, uh, well, all of the crises that we're that we're facing, whether whether you know with Turkey, with with, with the whole region in the uh, uh, in the uh, the Fertile Crescent, or in well, all all of them, all, all of the. Okay, I'm not I'm not smart enough to answer that question. <laughs> tell me, tell me what we should do about everything. Here's what I would say. I'm serious now. Here's what I would say. I think the the central defect of U.S. national security policy as it has evolved since the beginning of the Cold War is to prioritize threats out there. I suggested that a minute ago. You know, the, the Cold War, the Cold War, the, cent the centerpiece of the Cold War was Europe and the threat was the Soviet Union. We committed ourselves to the defense of, of Western Europe and that was the right thing to do in 1949. Beginning in 1950, when the North Koreans invaded the Korean Peninsula, we had a major commitment uh, to, the, to the security of East Asia. Military presence in Korea, in Japan, that has endured ever since. Beginning with the Carter Doctrine of 1980, we, we committed ourselves to making a major security commitment to the Persian Gulf because we thought that our prosperity and our well-being depended upon access to Persian Gulf oil. So the investment of dollars of blood yeah. to in, in, in dealing with the perception of threats out there, that's been the centerpiece of national security policy. What I'm saying is that thinking is obsolete. The threats that matter are close at home. The threats that matter are to a considerable extent within our own borders, and if not in our own borders, in the northern half of the Western Hemisphere. So if you say, aha, yes, that is correct, what follows from that? I think what follows is a very considerable redistribution of resources. Let me try to give you an, an example or two. We have the world's best Air Force, far and away the world's best Air Force. And the Air Force is not defined, is minimally, minimally organized uh, to protect the United States of America. That is to say, this place where we live. It is mostly organized to project power to places like the Persian Gulf or East Asia. Well, those of you who live in California, what good is that doing for you today? Not, nothing. Because the threat to California, to the entire Pacific Northwest, today is wildfires. 
what I would do is say, I want to have, I'm going to take money away from the Air Force. I'm not going to close down the Air Force. I'm going to take money away from the Air Force. I'm going to increase the budget of the United States Forest Service to enable them to expand their air capability so that they have a greater capacity to fight the fires that pose threats to us today, here and now. You know, the People's Republic of China is an adversary. Got to take it seriously. People's Republic of China is not in particular an immediate threat to your well-being and my well-being. Another example, since World War II, we've had far away the biggest and best Navy in the world. You know, we've, whatever, we've got 11, 11 uh, nuclear aircraft carriers. Uh, the Chinese got like one and another one coming. And it'll probably take them 20 years to figure out uh, how to master the intricacies of, of air, aircraft aviation. It took us that long. It took us from World War I to World War II to figure out how, how, to, how, to, how, to, how to do that. Uh, so we got far enough. I don't think that today, right now, the United States Navy is doing much for your well-being and my well-being. Now, the Navy would say otherwise. What I would say is, I'd take money away from the Navy. I'd give it to the Coast Guard. I want a bigger Coast Guard. I want a more effective Coast Guard. I want them to have more ships, better ships, more aircraft, better aircraft. Because when we think about what the Coast Guard does, you know, the range, the range of activities involving the Coast Guard between security and environment and, you know, anti-drugs uh, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 refugees, we need, we need the best Coast Guard in the whole world. So I'd be shifting money from the account that says United States Navy to the account that says United States Coast Guard. Those are examples of what I of what I mean. Well, Andrew, what about uh, Vietnam? Now, what was your role there, and what were the lessons we didn't we didn't learn the lessons of Vietnam? Well, my my, my role was insignificant. <laughs> I mean, I was I was a lieutenant. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've, this is you know this is a half century ago now, and I reflect back on how stupid I was uh, and uh, how. Uh, deficient, uh, my understanding of the origins of the war, the conduct of the war, the consequences of the war. Uh, I sort of laugh at myself as, as I'm now, as I'm now doing. What did we learn from Vietnam? I think at the political level, meaning presidents and the Congress, uh, learned that, uh, learn to avoid stupid wars that are not directly related to, you know, fundamental national security interests. What the military took away, and I stayed in the military after the war, what the military took away is we need to prepare ourselves to fight wars, different kinds of wars. When the, when the military left Vietnam, it said, we're done with that stuff. We're not going to do that ever again. The focus became preparing for the defense of Western Europe. That was mission number one. That's what I did, for example, late 1970s, 1980s, get ready for the Soviets to invade Western Europe. Now, in reality, the Soviets weren't going to invade Western Europe, but it gave us something to do. It gave us a focus for our activities. In other words, we were planning to fight a conventional 
high intensity conventional war. It is a fact, hard to understand in retrospect, it is a fact that our war plans for the defense of Western Europe assumed that the Soviets would refrain from using nuclear weapons. In other words, we assumed that if, a, if World War III occurred in Western Europe, it would be a conventional war. Why did we assume that? Well, we assumed it because if the Soviets attacked, I, I should say the Warsaw Pact attacked uh, a, a, against NATO, we thought we would kind of have a chance if the war were conventional. And, and if, if the war turned nuclear, nobody had a clue about what would be the consequences. So you assume that the war is going to be conventional and that, that creates this kind of fantasy world uh, in which, you know, <laughs> in which you can think you're doing something that, uh, that sort of uh, makes sense. I'm getting off topic. The real point here is that that line of thinking, a conviction that the next war is a conventional war, and th that's the one we should prepare for, uh, is seemingly affirmed in the Gulf War of 1991, Operation Desert Storm, a conventional war fought against a sort of Soviet-like adversary that we win quickly. It seems to be affirmed again in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq and the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Again, a conventional war it seems to affirm that we know how to fight and win, but leaves us completely unprepared for the wars that we end up with, not only in Iraq and in Afghanistan, which are unconventional, irregular, not fought against forces that look like us, but against people who don't have an air force, don't have uniforms, but are, uh, you know, determined and fierce fighters, uh, leading to a war in Iraq that lasts years and years, ends, produces ambiguous outcome, leading to an even longer war in Afghanistan, leading to, uh, leading to a conclusion that is gonna be uh, failure. You know, we're not gonna be militarily defeated but we will have failed. Big question now, I think, as to what lessons the United States military or the national security uh, you know, establishment is gonna draw from the experiences of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. My expectation is they will try to avoid thinking about that. Uh, and indeed, I think that's already happening because everybody in the Pentagon is gung-ho to now see the People's Republic of China as the new enemy, uh, give us something to do is to, you know, gear up for a military competition with China. Again, from my perspective, where the threats that matter are near at home, the last thing we need to do is to persuade ourselves that we are engaged in a new Cold War now with China as the adversary, that will lead to investing 
many, many, many billions of dollars in enhancing Pentagon capabilities while under-resourcing the threats to our well-being here where we live. That's my mantra, where uh-huh. we live. That's what matters most. Sorry for the long-winded uh, answer. You, you brought up the subject of um, special relationships and you mentioned um, Israel. Yep. Um, it seems to me there we, we have um, a number of other special relationships. One of them uh, is to Taiwan, another perhaps to South Korea, another perhaps to Japan, another uh, perhaps to Saudi Arabia. Um, in any case, fo- refocusing our, uh, our um, defense strategy to deal with the real problems that we face here at home um, might seem to require that we abandon some of our commitments in these special relationships. Um, is that, do you think that's going to happen? Uh, is it possible? Oh, no, no, it's not going to happen. Nothing I propose is actually going to happen. Come on. Uh, but it should happen. But I, but I mean, I wouldn't use, I don't think I'd use the term abandon. Uh, to me, the, to me a, a, an important example, this is not an example you just gave, uh, relates to, to Europe. Uh, cornerstone of our commitment to Europe is NATO. NATO created in 1949. I think I already said a brilliant act of enlightened statesmanship. Why? Because in 1949, Europe was very weak and very vulnerable and faced a threat of the Soviet Union. Today, Europe is not weak. It's not particularly vulnerable. uh, And it doesn't face the Soviet Union. It faces uh, Russia, uh, which uh, is not an insignificant country, uh, but it does not possess either the ability or the uh, inclination uh, to launch an attack on Western Europe that's gonna go to the English Channel, which is what we thought the Soviets were we're contemplating back in the 1950s. Bottom line is uh, Europe's capable of managing its own uh, security problems. And we should insist that Europe does so. What does that mean? That means extricate ourselves from NATO. Now, I don't mean to say, let's do it next Tuesday. What I mean is we, we tell them that there's a clock ticking. Maybe it's a 10 year clock. You know, Here we are in 2021. Maybe we say uh, in uh, August of 2031, the United States will withdraw from the, from the alliance. So we now have 10 years, European friends, for you guys to figure out how to defend yourselves. Let's come up with a plan. Maybe, maybe item number one of the plan is that the next Supreme Allied Commander Europe, it's always been an American, Maybe the number one item is the next SAC year will be European. Let's talk about who that might be. A series of steps that will reduce our presence, that will reduce our role, that will culminate in 10 years with Europe being responsible for its own uh, security. That'll be, that'll be like what? 90 years or something after, after World War II. Uh, so I, 
that's that's what I what I mean. So uh, I I mean the, the the whole language of uh, of commonly used, not used by everybody, about the Israel security situation is so obsolete. You know, all the David Goliath kind of a stuff. Jeez, the Israelis are Goliath. All the worries about how terrible it would be if Iran developed a nuclear capability, and I'm not in favor of Iran developing a nuclear capability. Uh, actually, there's a Peter Beinart has a piece in the Times today, I think, where he says, why do we persist in indulging this fiction that Israel doesn't have nuclear weapons? They do. Yeah. They got the capability of delivering nuclear weapons. Even if it weren't that, they got far and away uh, the, the, the best military in the region. So this, no, this notion that they are, you know, on the verge of being destroyed uh, is not accurate. Uh, and it's, it's not particularly helpful in evaluating our relationship with Israel in realistic terms. I am not, I am not for a second saying we should abandon Israel, whatever that would mean. Uh, I, I think that we just need to be realistic about who has what kind of capabilities and ambitions. And let's face it, folks, uh, the, the successive Israeli governments have uh, pretended uh, to support a two-state solution and everything they have done uh, has worked to make that prospect less and less uh, likely. Now, from an Israeli perspective, that may make a lot of sense. Uh, but from our perspective, where we have said that we believe in a two-state solution, uh, it's, uh, you know, what again, why are we indulging in, in, in fictions uh, that, that are so much at odds with, re we need to understand reality. So, you know, I, I just think that it's time for us to be, you, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. I mean, if anybody can explain to me why the United States has aligned itself with Saudi Arabia in Saudi Arabia's rivalry with Iran for dominance in the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, give me the answer. Maybe the answer is they buy $3 billion worth of weapons from us every year, which works to the benefit of the military industrial complex. Uh, but in terms of our interests and in terms of our values, that make any sense. I'm not, not an apologist for Iran, autocratic government. Don't respect, they don't respect freedom, rights. Guess what? <laughs> the Saudis are in exactly the same uh, category. So to me, it's like, you know, why, why are we picking sides here? But Andrew, are you saying, I mean, you seem to be saying that Donald Trump was on the right track in some sense. Oh, oh only, in, only sort of inadvertently. Uh, I mean, he, first of all, yeah, Trump, Trump, Trump's message to the Europeans was crystal clear. You sons of bitches got to pay up. Remember that he was not the first president who was, he wouldn't have used, President Obama was insistent that the European members of NATO needed to invest more in their own defense. I mean, the, big, the biggest offender uh, is the Germany. Uh, you know, I lived seven years in Germany. I really like Germans. I really like Germany. They're paying like, you know, 
5% of GDP uh, to, to support a military. Their military is, uh, it, is not in, it is not capable. Uh, so Trump was right to lean on the Germans to pay more, you know, but his, his rationale for doing so uh, had, was not connected to a strategic vision. It was just his sort of New York uh, real estate tycoon sort of, these guys are picking my pocket and by God, I'm going to get back at them sort of uh, stuff. It didn't have any strategic uh, rationale. O- only in that sense am I saying something positive about Trump. He was obviously the worst president we've ever had in our entire uh, lives. By the way, a friend of mine just uh, sent me this uh, latest, you know, uh, expose. It's called Landslide. It's about like the last three or four months of the of the Trump administration. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I want you to read my book, but I got to tell you, you got to read Landslide. Yeah, I'm reading it now. Yeah. To read, I mean, maybe you, I don't know if you to appreciate the the chaos, the madness uh, within the within the administration. No, nobody was in charge of of the executive branch. Nobody. <laughs> just, just anybody could walk into his office. And if they said what Trump wanted to hear, Trump would say, yeah, hire that guy. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to believe. What's, what's, what's the solution now? You mentioned Mexico and Latin America. What is, what should be done there to establish? So what, I, what, what I say in the book, and again, let me emphasize, nobody's going to pay attention to this. Is it? I, I think we should create uh, a North American security zone. In other words, to establish special relationships with Canada and Mexico. We we had we know we did we did with NAFTA right back in whatever it was 1990 something, which is a, a special relationship uh, based on on trade. Uh, I think we have to we should have a special relationship that addresses common security interests. Now the security concerns of Canada and Mexico differ radically from one another, but Canadian security interests and Mexican security interests do I think coincide with ours. So the idea would be let's, let's create, you know, if you wanna call it a NATO, it's, it's really not a NATO, but let's create a, a NATO for us in our in our North American neighbors, so that we can uh, collectively provide for our security. My sense is that the biggest security concern of the Canadians has to do with the uh, the far reaches of the North, as as the climate crisis melts the Arctic. Uh, regions that were impassable now become passable. Uh, open for commerce, open for exploration of uh, of mineral wealth, and therefore likely to bring about intrusions by adversaries like China, like Russia. We want to help the Canadians provide for the 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 sanctity of their territory. If you look south, you know it's a whole different set of of, of concerns that relates to drugs, relates to Crime relates to uh, uh, migration, uh, relates to uh, structures of government that uh, 
I'm not an expert in Mexico. I don't know why, but they can't seem to you know, create effective uh, institutions. Not for a second. You know, I, I am highly conscious of the failure of the nation building project in Afghanistan. One of the things I take from that is nation building is really, really hard. It doesn't, not for a second do I think that uh, greater interest in in Mexico leads to US imposed solutions of Mexican problems. But I think I would stubbornly say that we probably would have a somewhat better chance of alleviating some of Mexico's problems than we have had in alleviating the problems afflicting Afghanistan, if only for reasons of geographic uh, proximity. Uh, but that's where I would want the focus to be, on those two countries, because they're the two that matter most to us. Andrew, what do you th think should be our position now with regard to Cuba? Well, which is undergoing major turmoil. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, I, I think I think that the uh, the punitive approach has not worked. Right. Uh, you know, some people might say, well, it is working. Look at look at the unrest. The unrest shows that people are sick and tired of the Cuban government. Maybe uh, I do think that uh, commercial and cultural uh, engagement uh, is far more likely over time to bring about positive change in Cuba than a punitive policy based on isolation. Now, of course, I guess mostly Cuban Americans, I don't know, I frankly don't know who else cares about Cuba these days, would say, oh, no, 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 you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, making nice with a, a communist regime that denies individual freedom. I don't, uh, it is a communist regime that denies individual freedom. Uh, it's also highly discredited. Uh, it has failed, the revolution has failed. I don't expect that Cuban officials are going to publicly say the revolution has failed, but it's failed. Uh, and so I think a policy of engagement over time uh, is likely to bring about uh, kind of a soft landing for the revolution as, it, as a transition to some other form of governance uh, occurs. So I'm for engagement, not for isolation. It's much more likely to provoke change if uh, if people have opportunities for taking individual initiative. We're going to see many more kinds of protests and the well, you know, and you know it's going to have to Matt, let let everybody have access to the internet, right? You know that I mean I'm believe me I'm I am not a fan of you know so I'm not on Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz, uh, but clearly. Uh, that kind of stuff can have a profound effect on uh, people's attitudes. Andrew, let, let me switch the subject to climate change. That's something I've been working on for the last 20 years, uh, and it's been very discouraging, trying to get the American public, if you like, to recognize just how critical this is, uh, probably the most critical issue that we have over the next few centuries, quite frankly. Do you think that the fires, the floods, the hurricanes, uh, the extreme temperatures, do you think the American public is finally starting to get the picture? Uh, 
you know, I mean, I'll give you an honest answer is how the hell do I know? Uh, but my, but my gut is, yeah, it is, uh, you know, the level of, of the conversation, you know, it's omnipresent now. Yeah. The amount of reporting in newspapers, you know, the, the talk on the news shows. Uh, I think that there probably is a, a growing and irreversible uh, appreciation of the threat. But, and the but is huge. And the but is, I see little likelihood that the American people are willing to uh, make the necessary changes in the American way of life that you know more than I do, that probably would be required to effectively address the problem. And I will point to myself as guilty. So, you know, my wife and I are in our 70s. Uh, kids are grown. Uh, we still have two cars. Why do two people need two cars? Because we're Americans. Americans are supposed to have cars. Uh, my wife and I, uh, my brother's only daughter is getting married uh, in California, uh, like roughly two weeks from now. Uh, we're gonna fly to California because we're Americans by God. If we wanna fly to California, we'll fly to California and we'll rent a car. And then we're gonna drive down to, we're gonna fly to LA. Then we're gonna drive to San Diego, why? because we've never been to San Diego. We want to see San Diego. And then we will drive back up to the wedding. And then I think we're going to drive to Santa Barbara to go visit a winery. Why are we going to do that? Because we're Americans. Americans, are, Americans take it as a given that we can consume and that we can have this sort of mobility on call uh, so you got to persuade people like me <laughs> and the rest of us. Well, how do we do that? I, sir, I have no idea. I mean, that, that is, and, and, and nor is there any indication that I can see that people like President Biden are willing to take that on. You know, I, I didn't write about it in this book, but I've written about it in other books. To me, the, one of the crucial turning points or non-turning points in American history uh, is when Jimmy Carter gave his famous Malay speech, some of which you remember. Uh, and the Malay speech, the Malay speech is happening during, during what was it? The second uh, uh, oil crisis? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and Jimmy Carter goes on national TV and, he's, and he says, my fellow citizens, we need to rethink the meaning of freedom. Freedom is not self-indulgence. And freedom requires self-discipline. These are my words, not his words. But the speech, you should read the speech. If you've forgotten the speech, you should read it. And he says, what we need to do if we're going to preserve genuine freedom is we're going to have to revise the American way of life. Turning away from self-indulgence, demonstrating some amount of, of self-discipline. And he went on to say, and oh, by the way, the energy crisis... This is the moment to undertake that change. This is the moment 
when we are going to reorient the country and change the culture. And the American people responded by saying, who are you kidding? That, that one with that speech in uh, summer of 78 or nine, I can't remember which. The American people gave the response in 1980. Jimmy Carter ran for re-election. They threw him out and elected Donald, or, uh, Ronald, I almost said Donald, Ronald Reagan, whose message was, hey, we can have it all. We're America. We're not about sacrifice and doing with less. We're about more. And so we elected him. We elected him to a, a second term. And even today, I mean, most of our fellow citizens, not all, most of our fellow citizens look back at Ronald Reagan and say, man, there was a great president. But Andrew, you think that's a generational thing, though? I mean, do your grandkids have uh, two cars? Yeah, my grandkids are too young to have gotten to that. My, my children, uh, now that, I mean, let's think, I got, we, we lost our son. We got three daughters. Uh, all three of them have two cars. Uh, not, I mean, let me, let me say on their behalf, none of them have a second home. I mean, that, that's the other, another expression of American self-indulgence, you know, yeah. have a house here, another house there in the mountains or on the seashore. Why? Because we're American. A lot of, a lot of our friends have at least two homes. It's crazy. Uh, but no, my kids are, uh, my, my daughter is just totally wonderful, but, uh, they're not, they're not buying the Jimmy Carter line. I mean, I mean just put it, let me just put it that way. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. It was really- Absolutely. Hey, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it a lot, okay? And uh, I'd be grateful if you take a look at the book, but you know, we're all busy. We've we got other Definitely. stuff to do. Andrew, I'll make a commitment to actually buy the book. Yeah, right. Yeah, you are, <laughs> sir, you are my friend. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Good luck to everybody. The book is titled After the Apocalypse, America's Role in a World Transformed. The author is Andrew Basevich. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.